Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce. And my guest today, I'm really excited about this, is Stephanie Coons. Uh, Stephanie is the author of numerous books and articles. She's been published in the New York Times and scholarly journals, many, many places. And she also teaches history and family studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Welcome, Stephanie Coons. It's a real pleasure and a thrill to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. So you are really an expert in marriage, and you've been studying it for a long time. You've written so many articles and books about marriage and the trends and history of marriage. And, you know, divorce is part of marriage for a number of people, but obviously it's not the desired outcome. When people walk down the aisle and say, I do, no one is thinking, well, I can't wait until I get divorced. And so what are some ways that you think people can avoid divorce? Well, first of all, let me say it's not always important to avoid divorce if things have deteriorated to the point that they're difficult for one or both or for the children. So the best way to avoid divorce is to pick wisely long before you get to that stage. (laughs) I think that's very good advice. So I'm a historian, not a psychologist, and I can give some advice based on what I've read. One of the most important things we can do is put this in perspective. Uh, how marriage is changing and what divorce means to us. You know, and up until it's really only in the last 40 years that we have been trying to organize marriages that are not based upon a strict division of labor, you know, sort of cut and dried gender roles in which it was the man's responsibility to bring home the bacon, so to speak, that he was the one who was going to earn their living and that What he expected in return for that and got in return for that was a certain amount of deference from the woman, that she would keep the house clean, that she would take care of the kids, that she would, you know, cater to him when he got home. And really, it's only in the last 40 years that we started to think maybe we want one that's based more on sharing rather than on specialization and attraction to your opposite. Let's think about having friendships that are very important and shared activities. And that's been a tremendous strain. First of all, it's just hard to negotiate. We've got all these tapes running in our head in terms of men expecting women to defer to them, men thinking that the way to show their love to women is to buy them things and teach them things. And women thinking, well, I'm really attracted to this guy who's, you know, he's dangerous. I mean, romance novels for 200 years have encouraged us to find attractive a man who is taller, stronger, wiser, richer, and potentially very, very dangerous because that's the other side of our expectation of him to protect us. There's a fine line between those. So we walked into this new situation with a lot of bad tapes that get us attracted to the wrong people. And even when we got attracted to somebody who really has a lot of potential, we still have a lot of things to work out. Men, for example, have had until recently, and this is really exciting news that this is changing, were threatened when a woman had more education uh, than he did or earned more money. Up until the 1980s, that was a big risk for divorce. That's changing now. 
men are beginning to get used to the fact that women can be equals and they can even outshine them in some circumstances. Women are beginning to understand how to negotiate for what they want instead of just shutting up and deferring until they got get so angry that they say they want a divorce instead of saying they want to change. Yeah. So I think that we are learning. I think we will never get rid of divorce because people do have choices and alternatives outside marriage. But the divorce rate has been falling, especially for younger couples, educated couples. And I think that's because we're learning how to marriage better. You know, I think that's really true. Although, as you're talking through the sort of the list of traditional or old-fashioned values or, you know, roles for men and women, I find myself somewhat disheartened that they're so still, at least in my practice, so prevalent and so stubbornly holding on to our psyches. Yes, I think that is very frustrating. And the thing that is particularly frustrating, I'm sure, to you and to me as a researcher is that some of these old attitudes used to keep marriages stable, but nowadays they're a threat. Philip and Carolyn Cowan find that when parents backslide into traditional gender roles after the birth of a child, there's tremendous discontent in ways that there didn't used to be because the woman feels excluded from her access to meaningful life. The man thinks, well, I'm taking on all the breadwinning now, and why isn't she more grateful? And the sorts of things that we used to think were important to make a marriage work are actually undermining modern marriages, those older attitudes. Yeah, and you sort of can't put the mustard back in the tube. Toothpaste, I guess it is, back in the tube. I mean, that women just see life in a very different way than used to be, and men do too. Yes, that's true. And here, and the good news is that, as I said, all of these predictors of divorce are changing. And one of the things that's very interesting, I found as a woman, I found this sort of pleasing, is up until the 1980s, the couples that had a very traditional division of labor, where the man did most of the breadwinning and the women did the child rearing and the housework, they actually reported higher marital quality and sexual satisfaction than couples that had a non-traditional division of labor. But that's been turned on its head since the early 1990s. And now the couples who report the best marital quality, the best sexual satisfaction, are the ones who share breadwinning and child care and housework. So, Stephanie Coons, what are some other things that, say, a listener is at the beginning of their marriage and they're thinking, all right, now I've got an expert on marriage and she's got some really great words of wisdom for me on what I should do to make the marriage work. So one one thing would be what we were just talking about, sort of sharing the tasks and talking about who's going to do what and why so that there's an engagement between the spouses as to those roles and people don't just slip into the traditional, you know, in this day and age, dissatisfying gender roles if they're a two-sex marriage. What else would be some things that they should consider? Well, again, I don't like to pretend that I'm a psychologist, but I do know some of the research here. I think a lot of it does go back to the question of who you choose, who you're immediately attracted to because of the element of danger and mystery and not knowledge may not be the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And I think that it's really important for people to think through what is attracting you about that other person and will that wear well? <laughs> I think extremely important is respect. John Gottman is one of the very well-known marriage researchers, points out that one of the best predictors that a couple will stay together is how they respond to overtures from the other that he calls bids for connection. 
and sometimes in my own marriage, I think of them as just bids for attention. Yeah. <laughs> and so, for example, if somebody says, oh, look at that boat out there, and you can respond negatively, I'm trying to read now, I, you know, or, oh, aha. Uh-huh. But if you step forward into that, you look at that boat, oh, yeah, you get up, you walk over, you look at the boat, you say, you know, remember the last time we did that? That kind of interaction where you build upon each other's is an extremely important predictor of whether you're going to have a good marriage. It's not if you fight or how you fight. Uh, people can't fight fair when they're in the, you know, that it's the, it's it's what happens afterwards in everyday life, how you make up and how much you respect each other's bids for connection or attention. And what I think is important for people to realize is you can't legislate that. You can't go away to a weekend encounter session and learn for the rest of your life, respond to your partner's bids for attention or connection. You have to actually be interested in what your partner says. And that's why I think that's so important to get past this romanticized, sexualized version of, oh my goodness, he's sweeping me off my feet. Oh my goodness, I can't think of anything but her. And think about how this will play in the long run. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. A friend of mine says that you should never marry a man that you can't imagine divorcing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe counterintuitive, but I think it's really good advice. Another piece of advice I think that is really counterintuitive is that they find that couples who bicker, now I don't mean fight flat out, but who bicker a lot in the first three uh, years of marriage are actually less likely to divorce, more likely to support, report themselves happy 10 years down the line. And I think that's because modern marriage takes much more negotiation than it did when everybody knew what a man was supposed to do and what a woman was supposed to do. And when women came to marriage with far less negotiating skills or clout because they didn't earn money and they didn't have as much experience. So now you have to negotiate and you're going to have differences over that. You're going to bicker over them. But one of the patterns that psychologist friends of mine tell me that they see in divorces is that a woman will negotiate internally, make a compromise, not talk it over with a man. So he doesn't realize that she's been compromising and giving in all along until she finally gets so mad that she confronts him and it may be too late. By the time a woman like that gets mad enough to say what she wants, she's often ready for a divorce. So it's so important for women and men to start thinking about these, talking about them, even if there's a little friction, figuring out how to coordinate two lives that are equally important and one isn't automatically going to give in. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, or perhaps you're listening on our podcast, which is available at www.divorcedialogues.com. I'm Catherine Miller, and I'm talking today with Stephanie Coons, author, teacher, historian about marriage, what makes a successful marriage and what doesn't. And Stephanie, do you think that the feminist movement was good or bad for marriage? I think that it was initially disruptive of marriage, but I think that in the long run, it's been very good for marriage. Now, we have to make a distinction. I've studied marriages of the past, and sometimes they worked out very, very well. But very often, people had kind of low expectations for intimacy in marriage. And as late as the 1960s and 70s, many women, there were much higher rates of 
not just domestic violence, but the little minor things, supposedly minor things that we wouldn't accept today. The idea that you would slap your wife or tell her to shut up, this sort of thing. There are times when, when saving a marriage is not a good thing. And when we started developing these much higher standards for what marriage should be like, it definitely led to an increase in divorce. At first, when a woman took a job, that tended to increase the divorce rate, whether because her husband was threatened by her earnings power or because she took a job because she was unhappy and wanting to get out of the house. So that definitely destabilized marriage. But what we're seeing now is that as men and women are learning to negotiate these new roles and enjoy them, I mentioned the housework study. It turns out that men and women are happier when they share this rather than either doing it all themselves or having their partner do it all themselves. And as people have begun to adjust to this, we find that the most stable marriages are the ones that share the breadwinning and the child raising and the housework. That couples that go on to have second and third child tend to be the ones where the man has stepped up to the plate during the early days of child rearing, which decreases the tensions. And throughout Europe, we now find that dual earner couples are actually more stable and less likely to divorce than the old male breadwinner one or the few new female breadwinner ones. You know, it's really interesting, but I've noticed in my practice that there's a sort of pattern that sometimes happens where the woman has become the primary breadwinner. She's making more money or maybe the only money in the family, and she starts to really resent the husband for not being the stronger, the breadwinner, and that over time is sort of this kind of like eats away at their relationship and you know, she'll try to get him to work more or get a new job or get a job or, you know, whatever. And ultimately, he just feels like she's just nagging him all the time. She just feels so frustrated she can't get him to do something else. And it really makes me think. And there are other ways in, that I observe in my practice where, and I think I said this before, where the sort of the holding on of these traditional views can be so, I think, destructive to marriages instead of a more sort of progressive approach. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's that's absolutely true. It's a fine line in a situation like that, and it's something that women should remember men have had to deal with for many years, you know, the resentment of being the only one who is responsible for paying the bills. This was a burden on men, and it's one of the reasons or excuses or whatever you want to call it that they didn't step up to the plate at home as much. And when a woman has that kind of burden, she should recognize that this is a normal feeling and, you know, to what extent can we work it out that either he's doing things at home or he's contributing to the family in other ways, uh, financially or in terms of keeping the house up or whatever, that it'll feel fair. But the other side of it is, yes, women, for all the independence that we have achieved, and very few of us would give that up, we also still do have those kind of holdovers from the idea that, all right, well, we should be independent and high earners, but the man should be at least as good, if not more. And so I think every woman has to ask herself if she has got a legitimate complaint about an uneven division of labor in the household or if she is, in fact, using those kind of old standards for it. Another big issue for women is what sociologists call gatekeeping. 
And that very often you'll find women who complain that their husbands don't help out at home or with the dishes or with the children. And when you look more closely, part of it may be that the man is slacking off, but another part of it may be that we women still have this idea that we are the experts on these. And so we invite the man in, but as an unskilled laborer. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you tell him that he's doing it wrong this way, or you tell you give him the least pleasurable parts of the job, or you say, well, no, here, let me show you how to do it, or, oh, you did that wrong. I've been, you know, studying these things for years, and it's only just a year or two ago that my husband walked in the kitchen and found me reloading this dishwasher. <laughs> and he said, well, if you're going to reload the dishwasher, why should I ever load it at all? And I said, I know. Okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. It's it's almost not fair. It's really not fair to say, oh, we want the freedom. We want this, you know, the ability to go out there. But it's really optional for us. For you, it's mandatory. <laughs> Right, right. And the other side of it is it's not fair to say we want you to be full partners at home and not let them have the responsibility and the respect to let them do it their way, even if it's not the way that we would have done it. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm talking with Stephanie Kuntz today about divorce and marriage trends over time. And Stephanie Kuntz, if our listeners are interested in learning more about you or learning more about your books, where could they get more information? My books deal with the history of marriage and family life. You can just look under my name, but I also have a website, just stephaniekunst.com. And I also want to let people know about another website, the Council on Contemporary Families. I'm the Director of Research and Public Education there. And we're an organization of researchers who try to put out briefing papers and new research in succinct, readable English <laughs> forms that people can understand. So www.contemporaryfamilies.org is another good place to go if you want to uh, learn more about these family issues. But in terms of my own books, yeah, the stephaniekunst.com is the place. That's great. Over time, there are these traditional ideas that people have about what causes divorce, bickering about money, uh, not having sex, you know, these kinds of things. And, and I'm wondering what you think about those reasons, you know, what leads to that, and also what you think are the trends in divorce and, and, and our view as a culture or society toward it. I, You know, the old things are certainly there. People who fight over money, people are always going to have arguments. If you don't argue, you never work anything out. But how you fight is extremely important. One of the things that scientists find is that just in terms of blood pressure, that interspersing a honey or a deer or an affection or a sense of humor into an argument really lowers people's blood pressure and allows them to recover more quickly from the anger. There's always bad feelings. For the speaker or the listener? The, the listener. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and so a lot of it has to do with, again, to quote Gottman, how many positive things people do to counteract any of the negatives, because we all do have negatives. I've seen other research suggesting that it's really important to remember, especially when you're distracted, that the first thing to go when you're distracted or harried at work or worried about money is your ability to recognize things that your partner or your kids do that are helpful to you and to give them the gratitude they are due. When you're under stress, you start to notice only the things that get in your way instead of the things that smooth your way. And it's really important for a relationship to acknowledge and thank 
people for the things that move your way. Families work a little bit on an economy of gratitude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that sometimes people spend extra money or withhold sex in, as a reaction to a lack of communication and connection. As a, I, I don't want to use a, a psychological term, but I will anyways in a passive aggressive way to say, you know what? Well, if you're going to do that, you're going to treat me that way, then I'm going to, you know, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that's uh, something that people should talk out, whether it's with a therapist or with each other or just to yourself. I'm not somebody personally who has to have long heart-to-heart conversations, but when I notice that happening to either of us, I suggest, suggest we do something distracting but fun. As I keep saying to you that I'm, I'm not a psychologist and I hate to give advice about it, but paying attention to the dynamics and trying to step in to build on the strengths and the fun parts of the relationship That's, I think, one of the most important things that we can do. And to recognize also that when we are under stress, this is, I think, so important for families that have tremendous income problems. It's just normal to have negative interactions. It doesn't mean you just let the negative interactions go, but sometimes it helps just to know that the problem is not in your psyche, it's in your situation. And to be more patient with each other because you know that this is just a stressful time for the family. So let's go back to your statement that you're not a psychologist, you're a historian. But I think that you're definitely keen observer of marriage over time. And so I ask you these questions in terms of your observations about that, not as, you know, as a psychologist, but what your impressions are with all of the research that you've done. Fair enough. I just worry about playing a psychiatrist on TV, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. So, Stephanie Kuntz, in terms of the trends for divorce over time, you know, what causes it and societal attitudes toward it? Obviously, in the 70s or late 60s and 70s, there was a sort of a sweeping increase in the divorce rate. My parents have been married 63 years, but many of my friends' parents divorced at that time when we were in high school. I date myself now. And, you know, I know the divorce rate has, so it went up very sharply, I think, and then I think it's it leveled off and has come down. But do you think that society's attitude toward divorce, do you think it's less shameful? I think there are a lot of people who feel deeply ashamed about it and many people who don't. Well, you know, attitudes toward divorce generally kind of, one just historical fact that's important to note is that people became more favorable to divorce really after the divorce started rather than, you know, they they became favorable to divorce and then they went off and divorced. <laughs> but people who divorced became more favorable to it because in many cases they had been in marriages that were really, really dysfunctional and were glad to get out of them. So one of the things that we find is that there's not a lot of connection between what people say they feel about divorce and what they end up doing. Uh, educated Americans, college, are much more likely to be um, secular. Uh, Americans are much more likely to say that divorce is, is okay, and yet they have uh, relatively low rates of divorce compared to um, 
uh, highly religious people uh, in states where where highly religious people tend to get married very early. That's a much worse predictor of divorce than how people feel about whether you should be able to divorce. So I think we have to to walk a very fine line here, and that is to uh, encourage people to stay and work things out if possible, to really try to improve their relationship, but not to go back to the shaming uh, attitudes toward divorce that might make people stay in a toxic relationship much longer than they should, and that actually hurt the adjustment of both adults and children afterwards because of the stigma that is has been attached to it in the past. Stephanie Kuntz, we're out of time, but thank you so much for your for your thoughts today and your observations. It's been great talking. It was a pleasure to talk to you. 